Right, well, I want to read um, the verses where Jesus, for the first time, uh, spoke of his resurrection, or rather, it's the first recorded event uh, where he speaks of his resurrection. It's found in John chapter 2, and uh, I'm going to read verses 18 to 22. John chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, at about this time, two years ago, my wife and I were traveling back from a week's holiday in Bordeaux. We had to take the train to Paris. And then once we got to the rail station in Paris, we had to take a bus from there to take us to the Charles de Gaulle airport to fly back. When we were in the bus, I could see the two towers of a building which we'd visited some years earlier, the two towers of the famous Notre Dame Cathedral. Little did we know then that within two weeks of seeing it from the bus, there would be that great fire which would destroy a large section of the famous Notre Dame Cathedral. It was regarded as something of a national tragedy in France, but President Macron promised that it would be repaired and rebuilt, the part that was damaged, within five years. Now, had he said that it would be repaired and rebuilt within five months, I'm reasonably confident that most people in France would have thought this is just typical politician talk, making promises that just can't be delivered upon. If, however, he had said it would be repaired and rebuilt within five weeks, I'm certain that people would have thought he had taken leave of his senses. If he had said it would be done within five days, and I'm sure most people would have thought he was in serious need of medical attention and that he had a mental problem. What then are we to make of Jesus' astonishing statement that if his contemporaries were to destroy the temple, he would rebuild it not in three years, nor three months, nor three weeks, but rebuild it in three days. For the Jews, the temple in Jerusalem was far, far more iconic and significant and symbolic than even Notre Dame is to the French. When Jesus uttered these words, we are told, aren't we, um, in verse 30, sorry, verse uh, 20 of John chapter 2, it had taken 46 years to build that temple. It wasn't complete then. 
building would, would still go on for quite many years, for quite some time, many years after this event. But the temple that then existed had been 46 years in the building. And then he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three years. Those words struck in three days. Those words struck very, very deeply into the minds of his contemporaries. Because if you take the view which I take, that the cleansing of the temple which had just occurred was not the same event which is recorded in the other Gospels just days before Jesus was crucified, but this was an original cleansing of the temple three years earlier. Remember that at his trial, they garble his words and they say that he had threatened to destroy the temple and rebuild it. Three years later, although they garble what he had said, they still recall these words. They are tremendous words which Jesus spoke. They were not only quoted at his trial, but they take us to the heart of the message of the resurrection of the, from the dead. They take us to the heart of the good news of what Jesus had come to do. And I want to draw three things out of those words this morning. The first is this, human hypocrisy. Because human hypocrisy is the context in which Jesus uttered these words. It was in the world then, and human hypocrisy is still very much with us today. Let me just give you one very striking example. It was just a few years back, wasn't it, that a rugby player for Australia was dismissed by the Australian rugby team because of his quoting some biblical teaching. What they objected to was his referencing biblical teaching concerning homosexual activity. Can't say that. That's just not on. Dismiss him from the Australian team. But now here's the twist and here's the nauseating hypocrisy because at that point, the Australian rugby team's main sponsor was the Australian airline Qantas. And one of Qantas's main partners, wait for it, was Emirates, based in Dubai, where in Dubai, for homosexual activity, you can be sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. As when they were really going to be consistent, you would have thought that at the very same time that they dismissed the player, they would then have said, we've got to separate this sponsorship from um, uh, this partnership, the sponsorship from Contas because of their partnership with uh, Emirates. But they didn't do that. They didn't do it at the same time. Money talks, double standard, human hypocrisy. And you see that very much here in the, as the context in which Jesus made this extraordinary claim that if they destroyed the temple, this temple, he would rebuild it in three days. What was the context? Well, he had been outraged that they turned the temple into a bazaar, into a marketplace of buying and selling animals and changing money. So he drove all the people out and their animals from there. We read of that in verses 14 to 16. Somebody has said that to the temple authorities, this would be like standing outside the White House 
and burning the American flag. To American citizens, the burning of the flag is something you just don't do. It's an outrage. To do it outside the White House is particularly outrageous. For Jesus to go into the temple and to do what he had done was regarded by the temple authorities as an outrageous act. But interestingly, they realize what he's done is right. Their consciences have been activated, but they try to deflect attention from themselves. How? By posing this question in verse 18, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? It's a little bit like a man who's been caught red-handed shoplifting. And maybe the security man or somebody else in plain clothes grabs him because he's seen going out of the shop with, with you know, a bag full of goods he's obviously stolen. And to deflect attention from himself, he says, what authority have you got to do this to me? And so they demand from Jesus to take the heat off themselves. By what authority do you do this? Show us some miraculous sign. People still speak like that, don't they? I won't believe in that there's a God unless he shows some great sign. I won't believe this message of the Bible and guess, unless God gives me a certain sign that I want. Now that's the background. And this is where their hypocrisy will be exposed because Jesus' reply is both fascinating and devastating. In effect, he says this to them, you want a sign, I'll give you a sign, all right. But you've got to realize that I'm not a performing circus animal. I'm not going to jump to your tune. I'm not going to behave according to the agenda which you set me. I'll give you a sign, but you have got to realize that you can't domesticate me as you may domesticate, as we might domesticate a pet dog or some other pet animal. So here's the twist. You want a sign from me, I'll give you a sign, but the sign is going to be on my terms. Before we go any further, we need to just pause at that point and realize that Jesus cannot be domesticated. He is not there to jump to our tune. He's not a performing circus creature. And yet we can so easily fall into the trap of thinking he's like that, that he's there for us, rather than that we are there for him. That was truly one of the points of the, that excellent children's story this morning, of what went wrong in Eden that our first parents thought that they were the center of it all and because they were the center of it all. Well, what right did God have to tell them how to behave? We can betray ourselves, can't we? People sometimes say, I know what they mean. We've got to be very careful. Oh, the Lord is always there for me. Well, that's true. We mustn't think that we can control him. Now then, here's the devastating nature of Jesus' answer. And here's his challenge to these people. You want a sign? Very well, I'll give you a sign. This is the sign. Destroy this temple. 
you've got to do something first of all. And then I will perform the sign. You destroy this temple. Remember, he's in the temple when he's saying this. I will rebuild it in three days. It's a devastating reply because they think he's referring to the Jerusalem temple. Their beloved temple. It's almost as if they're understanding him to say that they've got to chop off their own head. And since the whole temple building project had been at the instigation of the Herod family, who were puppet kings of the Roman authorities, to destroy this temple would not be like burning the American flag outside the White House. It would be like setting fire to the White House and burning it to the ground. That's my challenge to you, Jesus says. You want a sign from me, I'm going to give you a sign. You're going to destroy this temple. And then I'll give you the sign, I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, if they were genuine, and if they weren't hypocritical, although they misunderstood him, although they thought he was referring to the Jerusalem temple, they should have said, wow, that will be a tremendous sign. But of course, there is a challenge to us. We're going to destroy this temple, first of all. But then you're going to rebuild it in three days. That would be an astonishing sign, wouldn't it? But they're having none of it. They just throw it back at him. Verse 20, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you are going to raise it in three days. I remember reading about a student once, and she was uh, a typically secularized 20th, this was in the 20th century, 20th century student. And she had contact with Christians. And then she threw out her challenge to them. And she said, if you can prove to me that the resurrection of Jesus really happened, I'll believe this message. So one night, a group of them sat down with her. They spent about three hours with her. They laid out the evidence for Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That this was a real event that happened in real space, in real time, at a real place, at a real point in time. They answered her questions, her objections. They considered everything. And at the end of it, there was silence. And one of them said, well, you said to us, if we could demonstrate to you the truth of the resurrection, you would become a disciple of Jesus. So you want to pray now and begin the life of discipleship. You want to entrust yourself to Jesus. No, she said. No. There's a smoke screen. There's a cover. That's what's going on here. Their consciences have been pricked. They're outraged. Give us a sign. I mean, what a spectacular sign it would be if they set fire to the temple, as Nebuchadnezzar had done to the earlier temple hundreds of years earlier, and then if Jesus had rebuilt it in three days. They're not interested in a sign, really, are they? After he feeds the 5,000, they ask for a sign. It's going to staunch him. They probably think along the lines, well, the manna came down from heaven. It just came from nowhere. But you've actually taken bread and fish. Yes, you've 
taken just a handful of loaves of bread and a handful of fish and multiplied it to feed 5,000, anyone would think that was sign enough, but, but it wasn't enough for them, no, because you had something to work on in the first place. Give us a sign like Moses gave us. They're not being really honest, are they? They're disingenuous. And people still play that game today. The service is going out, I think, online, is it? It's going out live. Maybe that somebody's watching who doesn't go to the church where this is being broadcast from in Cluddach in South Wales. And you've just tuned in and you're not a Christian. You can all these things. Oh, if God does this for me, if God does that for me, stop. We can never dictate to him and to do things on our terms. And if we're going to be real with Jesus, then he's going to put challenges to us as he put a tremendous challenge to these people. He knew how they would understand that and put that challenge to them to flush out their dishonesty and the hypocrisy. Maybe not someone just coming to watch this live, maybe someone in the church. And uh, you've been going to the church for some time and you're watching here on Zoom, but you're not really a disciple of Jesus. And you're waiting for a sign. If God heals my loved one of some terrible disease, then I'll become a disciple of Jesus. We just can't do that because he's the creator and we're the creatures. And we can't go around dictating. Have you ever thought if one person dictated to God, I want this sign, and somebody else wants the exact opposite, that means that the first person's request for a sign couldn't be fulfilled? Where does that leave God? No, no. We've got to know our place. Human hypocrisy. And we can all be guilty of hypocrisy. And we need to come to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, my hypocrisy. And secondly, Jesus is the real temple. Jesus is the real temple. People love religious buildings, don't they? France is a very, very secularized country, yet they love the Notre Dame Cathedral. People love Westminster Abbey in London or St. Paul's Cathedral. And of course, they love the temple. The Jewish people love the temple in Jerusalem. Yet here, Jesus refers to his body as the temple. Verse 20 and 21, the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. He flushes out the hypocrisy, but actually he is going to give them a sign. And it's a sign on his terms. And it is, if they destroy his body, and they will, he's going to raise it in three days. And he refers to his body as the temple. What did he mean by that? Well, I didn't know what Nathaniel was going to do with the children this morning, but as soon as he started to speak, I, I, I realized what was coming then was a temple and how well it fits with what I want to say now. Because the temple was the place where people could meet with God. Once a year, there was that big curtain, of course. Once a year, the priest, the high priest, could go the other side of that curtain on the great day of atonement. It was the keep out sign. But once a year, one man was led in 
and then he had to come back out. He couldn't stay in there. But it was the place where the people could meet with God because that was the place where sacrifice was offered, where priests would offer animal sacrifices to deal with people's sins. And in a very real sense, you could only meet with God on the basis of what went on in that temple. What Jesus is saying here is that that temple was only ever a picture. It was a model and it was pointing forward to him. His body is the real temple. And the people who destroy his body, but he would thereby through that be offering it as a sacrifice for our sins to God and he would remove our sins. And so we meet with God. Not on the basis of anything that goes on in a building, nor do we have to meet with God in a special building. We meet with God in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus spells this out very clearly just a little later in chapter 4, where he's speaking to a woman from Samaria. And he gets a bit close to, too close to comfort for her, that, that he starts to probe her life. And so she raises a sort of a, a, an issue for a religious discussion. People often do that, don't they? The truth begins to touch them personally. Well, there's nothing better than to start a religious argument or a religious discussion. And yet there was a serious issue at stake, and it was this. Jesus, she knew, was Jewish. She was from Samaria up in the north, and there was a big difference of opinion. The Jews believed that you worshipped in Jerusalem because that's where the temple was. But the Samaritan says, no, no, we've got it up here in Samaria. Jesus then says a fascinating thing to her. He says, believe me, woman, a time is coming and is now come when the true worshippers will worship neither in Samaria nor in Jerusalem, for the true worshippers worship God in spirit and in truth. But they are the kind of worshippers God seeks. Now, a lot of people misunderstand what Jesus is saying there. They think, but by spirit and truth, he meant we must be sincere and truthful. But that had always been a requisite for the true worship of God. But Jesus is now referring to something new. A time is coming and it's now come. Now is the time. But it's not a matter of worshipping in the Jerusalem temple or in the Samaritan temple, no, but in spirit and in truth. And if you plow your way through John's gospel, that's a shorthand for saying that we come to God through Jesus by the work of his spirit. Jesus is the temple. How important that is. People will say, oh, I, I love to go into a nice church because there I can pray properly. And it's not just people, it's not just people who belong to the Catholic wing or the high end of the church. I remember speaking to a lady who was a member of a very well-known evangelical church in um, South Wales, but she, she had to travel some distance to get to the church. And I knew that there was a church quite near to her that was meeting in a school. I said to her, why don't you go to such and such a church? Well, she said, I couldn't go there. But why not? I said, well, it's not a real church. I said, what do you mean it's not a real church? Well, they, they don't meet in a real church. They meet in a school. This woman had been saved for a very long time. She'd been saved in, in a very good 
He thoroughly sold evangelical church in South Wales. She'd moved to another part of South Wales. And yet she had this Old Testament way of thinking. We meet with God in and through Jesus. Was it Isaac Watts or William Cowper? I always, always confuse the two who, who summed this up in one of their great hymns. Jesus, where'er your people meet, there they behold your mercy seat. Where'er they seek thee, thou art found, and every place is hallowed ground. Why? Because we meet with God through Jesus. Our sins can only be forgiven on the basis of the sacrifice which Jesus made of himself. Once you've grasped that, you don't need a special building to meet with God, be it not a Darn, Westminster Abbey, or a Welsh chapel. And how important that is at a time of lockdown, when many meetings are like this. Yes, we want to be together as people, and that's a privilege we, we've now been able to enjoy for some, some weeks out here in Cyprus, where with social distancing we're able to meet, and you're going to have that this evening. And, we are longing for the time when the restrictions lift as well and people can embrace each other. But, but although we can't perhaps, or not every church is meeting in a building, we are together because we are in Christ. We're in Christ. We don't need a temple. We don't need a high priest because we've got one. Jesus is all in one, the temple, the high priest, and the sacrificial lamb. That means there are no more sacred holy places or sanctuaries. I used to pull the leg of um, some of the people in free school court when I went there, because there was the upstairs, it wasn't a huge building, and then there were other parts, and then they used to refer to the main hall as the sanctuary. And I said, it's not a sanctuary, it's a meeting hall. And one or two of them looked a bit shocked, and I said, you know, and if you went back to the 1700s, our forefathers would have said the same thing. It's a meeting place where we meet together to meet with God. Or again, years ago, a friend of mine, we, this is many years ago, we were in a certain church, and a little child ran up into the pulpit, and um, the church secretary really told him off. And I said, why did you tell him off so much? Well, he said, I told him that that place is, uh, it, it's holy. Oh, really, I said, how do you mean it's holy? What, why is it holy? Well, he said, that's where the preacher preaches from. I said, we're going to have an open air in a few minutes on the steps of the church. Are they holy? Behind a scratch, you said, Do you see what I'm getting at? This verse here, I think it was Spurgeon who said of Jesus' words to the woman of Samaria, to which I referred a few moments back. He said, If that verse really entered into the bloodstream of Christians, it would forever destroy all this idea of special sanctuaries, sacred places, belief in the resurrection. Belief in the resurrection has all kinds of practical implications and applications for how we, to use a horrible phrase, do church. Destroy this temple, and they did. And he then performed the sign. The sign was that he was raised from the dead. But of course, 
That didn't persuade people in the rich south, did it? Had not Jesus spoken sometime before his death and resurrection in that unforgettable story of the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man pleads with Abraham to send someone back from the dead? They've got Moses and the prophets. No, he says, but if you send someone from the dead, they'll believe. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe, even though someone is raised from the dead. It takes nothing less than a miracle of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of people, to open their hearts, to embrace the risen Lord in faith. And if you were one of those who says, well, if only I'd been alive when Jesus was on the earth, I would be a believer. Or if only he would do some great act, then I would believe. Don't, don't you believe it? Your problem is not intellectual. It's moral. It's spiritual. And that problem is so deep, nothing but nothing other than a miracle of God, the Holy Spirit, transforming your heart will enable you to believe the truth as it is in Jesus. So human hypocrisy, Jesus, the real temple, thirdly and finally, Jesus raised his body from death. Now, here is the question, which is the greater sign miracle? John, in his gospel, particularly refers to Jesus' miracles as signs. And that's for a number of reasons that we need to go into now. But, but one of them is that the miracles are like a window into who Jesus is and what he came to do. Which is the greater miracle? If they destroyed the temple and he'd rebuilt that Jerusalem temple in three days, or to raise himself from the dead in three days, which is the greater miracle. It's got to be raising himself from the dead, hasn't it? Because buildings can be destroyed and be rebuilt. All right. The cathedral in Paris, five years, President Macron said, I guess, however, that if you brought in an enormous army of, of workers, you could reduce that time. I used to be intrigued watching, was it an Alan Titchmarsh program and ground force, where you would see a, a huge area of wasteland that would be restored in a matter of days. And building work can go on very, very quickly. But you know, people may be able to repair and rebuild damaged buildings, but nobody can raise the dead. Only God can raise the dead. And that's what had happened in the Old Testament. Elijah had raised the dead, but it wasn't Elijah, it was the power of God through Elijah. Elijah was an empowered man by the Spirit. And the spirit in Elijah raised the dead. And Elisha had done the same by the power of the spirit. And Jesus had done the same. He had raised people by the same power of the spirit by whom Elijah and Elisha had raised the dead. And that's a really important point. 
How often, especially in the realm of what's known as apologetics, the defense of the faith. And in a children's chorus, which uh, they used to sing in, in um, a church I know, Jesus raised the dead, who can do that? Only God, therefore Jesus is God. That's to skew the way the New Testament presents Jesus. Did you notice it there in Acts chapter 2 in the reading we had, verse 22? Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. Well, if you turn to Acts chapter 10, where Peter is speaking to the house of Cornelius, he says in verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit of power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. He said the same thing in the synagogue in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's referring to what happened at his baptism, and the Spirit came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, the recovery of sight to the blind, the healing of those who are bruised, etc. So a bit of theology here, and it's this, and it's really important to, to be clear on this. It's the one person of Jesus Christ who performed these miracles, but that one person performed them as to his human nature, through his human nature, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Really important to get hold of that. He wasn't drawing on his godhood. That's partly what's going on in the temptation in the wilderness. Not only will he not jump to the uh, tune of the Jewish religious authorities, he certainly won't jump to the tune of the devil. Well, if you're the son of God, you know, turn this stone, these stones into bread. And he could do it. When he's arrested, doesn't he say, uh, do you not think I could not call on legions of angels? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't draw on his Godhead. So it's the one person, the eternal Son of God, God the Son, who does these miracles, but he does them as to his human nature, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Except, it seems to me, for this one miracle, raising himself from the dead. That's in a different category. It was one thing to raise others from the dead, who, of course, would then ultimately die. But this was different. This was a resurrection of a different order. And God the Father raised him from the dead. Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, that's a reference to God the Father. Or Romans chapter 1, where we read that he was declared to be the Son of God, uh, who through the Spirit was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The Father raised him, the Spirit raised him. But then listen to what he says in John chapter 10 of his, of his life, death, and resurrection. He says, I lay it down of my own accord, and I take it up again. No mere mortal, no matter how empowered by the Spirit, had ever resurrected themselves, but Jesus Christ did. 
because he's the God man. And he didn't just bring himself back to life, the same life. He went into death, and as one writer has put it, he went through death and came out the other side in the power of an endless life. He's not just, as the children's song was saying, the boss of the cross. He's the boss of the cosmos. He's the God-man. He raised himself up. It's a great theological John Murray, and he's got a great chapter in one of his books, Who Raised Up Jesus from the Dead? The triune God raised him. God the Father raised him. God the Holy Spirit raised him. And Jesus, God the Son, raised himself up. And that same Jesus ascended. And that same Jesus is the one who by his spirit lives in us the hope of glory. Let me close. Some little while back, was it last year or the year before? A man called Michael Green died. I didn't agree with all that Michael Green uh, said. He was a, an Anglican evangelical. But I knew Michael quite well. I got to know him first as a student when he was a, a vicar in, in the city where I was studying. But then in my first pastorate, it was in Mid Wales, in Flandrington Wells. And Michael had a house there. And he used to go there to write his books. And he was very friendly with one of the deacons in the church there. And I remember this deacon telling me that when Michael's mother, who'd been living, I think this was a family home they had then, he just inherited it. When his mother died in the local hospital, little college hospital, cottage hospital, she was a, a, a believer. He called the nursing staff together. He said, I want to tell you what's happened to my mother. And he laid up the gospel. And then was it before lockdown, but not long before lockdown, he died. And a very close friend of mine preached at his funeral. And this friend told me that Michael phoned him not long before he died. He said, I know I'm dying. I've already had two bits of surgery on my head. I'm going to have a third. I don't think I'm going to survive it. But listen, he said, I'm at peace. Because years for years I've believed and I've taught the resurrection from the dead. Spent no end of no end of his life going around speaking of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he said, That is now my hope. I'm ready to die in peace. And my only basis for dying in peace is that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he rose again. And he didn't come through the surgery. He died shortly after. And he's with Christ. Why? Because Jesus died and rose. Beloved, we've all got to die. Every single one of us. Unless Christ returns first, we've got to die. How are we going to face it? It's the last enemy. Many are dying, aren't they, because of COVID? Friend of mine, I'd known him for 62 years. He was really fit. Mountaineer. His wife was asthmatic. He wasn't. They both came down with COVID. He was in intensive care for three weeks and then he died. His last words to his wife, God is good. I remember the night when he was a 15 year old and he placed his faith in Jesus. And Christ has kept him all those years. And he had peace when he died. Have you got peace? You can have it only because Jesus died. Jesus is the temple. 
and Jesus rose ascending and is the living saviour.